So, you know, they always say, and I don't know if you've seen or heard this or believe it, but death, divorce, don't want them and uh, destruction or despair. I haven't. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So Barry Liparelli actually told me this. If you find somebody that's in a divorce mm-hmm. or they're in despair or destruction, you know, whether it's from a tornado or they, they just don't have money to fix it up or whatever, mm-hmm. um, don't want them and, and, or a death, the trust scenario. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you find somebody that's in one of those four categories, like they're a great target yeah. for you to get a good deal. Right. And by the way, you're helping them too because they want out, right? Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. I am super excited about this episode today because I've got a great friend in the studio with me today. And I actually had to ask him the question. I'm like, have you been on the podcast before? And he's like, no, I haven't. And which was surprising to me because, I mean, we just go way back. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot on the podcast is community and the organizations that you're involved in, the masterminds, um, the people that you get around. And Mike and I met at the early days of GoBundance, at least the early days for us. Um, GoBundance was around for five or six years before that. But I think we joined the same year and Mike's one of those people that I've been on a lot of trips, been into a lot of conferences, different places with Mike. And for whatever reason, we just always seem to end up getting into great conversations and connecting. And, you know, I only see Mike maybe once or twice a year, but when we do, it's always fabulous. And I don't think today's going to be any different. So thanks for being on the show, man. I'm so excited to be here, man. In fact, I was 50-50 on coming to Austin. And when you said, hey, be on the podcast when you're here. It was like, okay, well, now I'm 100% coming to po- to Austin. So I'm really excited. Thank you. I love it. And, yeah. you know, we were kind of talking about this before too, but it's interesting. Um, I mentioned this during COVID. I actually came and spoke to your community virtually. And that was one of, if it was either the first Zoom call I ever did um, or the second one after Rock Thomas. And it was like the same day mm-hmm. or um, week apart. And, you know, I think we're kind of in that period of time too, where it was like, I mean, you and I obviously could have done a podcast via Zoom. Mm-hmm. You don't need to come all the way right. to Austin. Um, but it's so much more fun being able to just see you, man. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. And even deciding instead of getting a studio in downtown, coming out to your home. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I have been excited for this day for over a week. Well, thanks for coming mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you uh, a couple of the questions, not all four, but mm-hmm. um, who's had the biggest impact on your life? Just emotional right from the get out. I love it. Uh, for me, it's my mom, my dad, and my grandma. Um, I don't like the idea of putting people on a pedestal. I think people want respect, but they don't want to be cherished like that. But um, my mom, my dad, and my grandma are three people where here's what I look at. Anyone out there who's had an impact on you, they've never sacrificed anything for you. Mom, dad, and grandma, they've sacrificed their futures for us. And when I look at the way the sacrifices that they've made and then the way they build me up, grandma taught me how to be an entrepreneur. Mom taught me how to live like day to day. And my dad taught me how to be a caring leader. Hmm. You know, I can't get any of those things from an Alex Hormozy or anyone that you put on that pedestal that has provided so much value to this world at an individual level, you'll never be the people that are in your lives. Hmm, That's good. I like that. 
What is the single piece of advice that you find yourself sharing with others the most? Ha <laughs> ha. Like we got to nail this down to a category. Um, I'm a real estate guy. I think one of the things I say a lot is um, social capital is significantly greater than money or currency. Um, and, and that goes well beyond anything in real estate, right? Relationships are more than everything that you have. But when it comes to the overcoming all the biggest problems and objections when it comes to investing in real estate or really a lot of things in life, it's relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are a good communicator and you care about people and you can build relationships, you can literally be successful in anything in life. So I think as a society, we want to say, you need this money, you need this job, you need this income, you need passive income, you need freedom, you need wealth. Eh, well, do you need it? It's great. Can really do a lot of things for you, but if you have all that and you don't have any relationships, you're poor. You can have amazing relationships and have none of that and be extremely wealthy. So I think that's one thing I say a lot, probably more often than anything, um, especially when we you talk to kind of new people in real estate about how do you become successful. So I that, that's something I get down to a lot. Yeah. Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about um, the Michael Jordan movie that just came out a while back. Mm-hmm. And through that whole thing, you've got that agent, right? Did you mm-hmm. see that movie? I saw the 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 Netflix series. I don't oh. think I saw the last one. No. Yeah. So there's there's there was a movie that just came out. And anyway, to make a long story short, there was an agent through the whole thing that you could just tell. They did a really good job of portraying him, but he was just really about the money. Mm-hmm. And at the end of everything, like, you know, everybody was a winner. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like celebrating together and he's eating dinner by himself at a white cloth, you know, steakhouse. Mm-hmm. And he's on the phone saying, congratulations, but he's just totally alone. alone. Right? And yeah. It's like, yeah, that's the thing at the end of the day. And I always say, you know, REM relationships, experiences, memories, like that's mm-hmm. the only thing that really matters. Mm-hmm. And obviously you can have better experiences if you have money. Yes. But at the end of the day, that's not really what makes you happy. That statement, like money doesn't make you happy. I mean, you could argue either way. We all need money to survive. And right. I don't believe that money makes you happy if you're a miserable SOB. But the reality is money makes everything easier. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I agree with you. Like the relationship aspect of that is the most important part of all of it. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be a transactional human being mm-hmm. by anything. Like in being in real estate, it's really hard to deal with people that are retail oriented in real estate. I'm an investor. Everything's about relationships. You get into the retail world, it's really transactional. Yeah. And so I want to be relational in all my things that I do. And, and so you look at all the businesses that I have, I'm very relational in the way I talk and the way I communicate, the way I write. Um, nothing about me is transactional. Mm-hmm. The nothing I do is outcome dependent. I'm never looking to complete an outcome. I'm trying to stay on a path. I'm trying to stay on a clear vision. But ultimately, cutting a corner or hurting someone or burning a bridge to get to an outcome, it's just the biggest way to be needy. It's the biggest way to not hear, to not listen, to not see all the perspective that you're missing because you're so focused on one thing. Yeah. I think that's also like from a an acquisition person that negotiates a lot of real estate, the one thing I've improved on the most is early on, I was pretty outcome oriented, mm-hmm. you know, that property and this price. Yeah. Now it's like, well, what do you need? Yeah. What can I do to help you? I have a huge network. We may do a deal. Great. No big deal if we don't. Yeah. Cause I guarantee you, if you need something, I can point you in the right direction. If it's not me, that's a okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking as you're saying that too, one of the first guys that I ever borrowed money from, his name's Barry. And I've probably done 75 
deals with him over the years. And mm-hmm. it's literally at the point now where, and I remember when I first started, you know, working with him, I'd go in and I'd have all my ducks in a row and mm-hmm. you know, try to, cause he's going to poke holes and everything. And now I send an email to team Lipparelli mm-hmm. and I'm like, here's the deal. We mm-hmm. ask Barry if he'll fund this. Yeah. And 35 minutes later, they're like, Barry says yes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, when you, when you approach it the way you're talking about from a relationship standpoint, mm-hmm. I mean, I've never not paid the guy. I've mm-hmm. always done what I said I was going to do. He always talks about character, collateral, and credit. Yep. Like the three things, the three C's that he, and I remember one time I had a line of credit that was due and I, it, I needed, it needed to rest for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And there, the bank was like, Hey, if you don't let this rest for 30 days, then we're going to have to call the note. Yeah. And I didn't have the capital. So I called Barry up and I'm like, Hey, I need 300,000 for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, actually 35 days. Cause it needs to rest for 30 days. <laughs> and he's like, great. Where do you want me to send it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, do you want to do some paperwork? He's like, it's 30 days. Mm-hmm. And he let me like 300 grand with like no paperwork. Right. right. And it's like, that's the kind of stuff. And so when you multiply that, not by one person, but a mm-hmm. hundred people that you're doing business with or a thousand or whatever, I agree with you. It's yeah. Important. Yeah. And even the ability, like early on when we were raising private capital for deals, it's, well, here's an, here's a packet. Here's all the information you need to know. At this point, it's a phone call. Yeah. And they, and some may, well, you have a packet. Sure. They don't even ask anymore Yeah. because there's nothing to look at. Yeah. They, at the end of the day, they're not investing in the project. Syndication is a really good example. The project has nothing to do with that investment. And if you're looking at numbers to justify that investment, you're looking at the wrong place. You need to be looking at the operator and the individual. Are they trustworthy? Do they care about you? Are they willing to pay you back if they can't make any money themselves? Um, So it goes so much further beyond anything currency can do. Yeah. We were talking about a friend of ours, Ken McElroy, and he always says, the prettier the brochure, the worse the deal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I'm going to steal that one. That's great. It's good, right? Because, you know, I mean, you can, I remember one of the first consultants I ever worked with, he's like, you got a dollar? And so I pull a dollar out of my pocket and he's like, you got to pay attention to percentages. Like I can make a dollar do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and that's kind of another version of what Ken was saying. You know, I mean, you look at a pro forma on on a brochure and it's like, how do you know that's real or not real? What's the experience? What's the season? What's that investor going to do when things get hard? I mean, there's all those things that you're mm-hmm. talking about. It's, it's wisdom. Yeah. It's, but yeah, it's wisdom. Yeah. I like mm-hmm. it. Um, what was your biggest setback and what did you learn from it? Ooh. Um, I, I'd say I'd have two. Um, the, the biggest first setback for me was the great recession. Um, I just wasn't aware to anything. I was an appraiser. I had really good income, really good credit. I bought a handful of real estate deals that didn't make sense. They had equity when I bought them. They had like 15 to 20% equity when I bought them, which was great when you're an appraiser. Oh my gosh, things were 300 and I'm paying 240. Mm -hmm. That's not a deal. Yeah. So I wasn't aware of how to actually sustainably invest in real estate so market conditions don't come back to bite you. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is macroeconomics is real. And if you don't pay attention to what's going on at the macro level, you will get lost at the micro level. And as an appraiser, and I got into appraisal right out of high school, it's safe to say I wasn't even really trained because you don't get great education. And most appraisers just fill out a box. So I didn't really even know how, I almost failed high school economics. Here I am appraising properties. I don't really know much about economics because it's a form that tells you how to communicate to the mortgage lender. And so I knew nothing about macroeconomics. And then, so I missed everything that was happening. And in Portland, we were a good year behind the rest of the nation. And so if I just paid attention, 
could have sold all my real estate. I could have cashed out. But instead, because I didn't pay attention, I refinanced all my properties, put the equity in the stock market, and the stock market crashed. And then the real estate crashed. And then the appraisal industry crashed. And so that was a huge lesson. Um, And then when I got into real estate development investment full-time, it was a bad partnership. It was just being in partnership with two guys that controlled all of the, not only decision-making power, but the books. Mm. And when you're in a partnership and you're based on equity at the end of projects and books can get cooked and then there's no equity to disperse. Mm. So I worked for uh, a year and a half for free and then filed bankruptcy after that. So it's like I made it through the Great Recession Got into a really bad partnership and filed bankruptcy in 2011 after most people would have. Um, So I learned some huge, and that's where I think I probably learned, I mean, I've always been a relational person. I think that was the scenario that showed me the other side, Mm. the bad relationships and the manipulation. And these partners, one guy had, you know, the, the gift to talk. He could just make anyone. And I, he's ripped off at least 25 people that I know wow. and will continue to do that. And so recognizing, and it's funny because when I first met that individual, I had a feeling in my gut that I completely ignored. Wow. And so I think that's one of the bigger lessons is to trust your gut mm-hmm. and investing is literally about trusting your gut. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So I want to get, I've been watching you lately on social media. Mm-hmm. I told you you've been doing a great job. Thanks. But you've been you've been posting a lot of like not I, I don't want to say controversial but like just very forward um statements lately. So I want to talk about I want to talk about the bullshit in real estate investing. Mm. Mm-hmm. You go there? I'd love to. Yeah. Um yeah, well Jason Drees posted a comment today. Your comment was ouch on his post, right? Like if you're not pissing people off, you're not authentic. Mm. And I think one thing, and this has come from GoBundance, is I've just learned to authentically be myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have, the older you get, you lose less patience, especially patience for bullshit, patience for individuals talking bullshit about themselves when they shouldn't, patience for the industries that you're in, the ethics and the lack of ethics that you see. So there's a lot of bullshit in real estate. It gets me fired up. Yeah. And I think social media is like my venting platform for that potentially Yeah, to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're still boots on the ground in real mm-hmm. estate. Like you're, you're still doing it. I still meet with sellers. Yeah. I mean, I have an acquisitions team, but the higher level stuff, I still communicate with sellers. I still, um, like I don't write anything anymore. I direct people to do things, but I'm in the weeds. I still go by our projects. I'm, I have a project manager and we hire GCs, but I guide him and I help him make decisions and, and I, to me, that's what I actually love about real estate it, because now I can be relational, relational with my employees. I, in real estate, it's architecture, it's finance, it's so many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I'll ever want to be out of it. And honestly, I think being in it is what allows me to see all the bullshit that happens. Yeah. So one of the things, um, I started a podcast recently. Actually, it's not a podcast. It's on YouTube. It's only on the YouTube channel. <laughs> um, it's called The King's Table with Aaron Amuchastegui and, and Matt Aitchison and Ashish Nathu. And one of the things that we keep coming back to because, you know, two of the guys are real estate guys. I'm a real estate guy, but I have a business background. And at the end of the day, every real estate guy is also a business guy, right? Like that's, that's the thing that I think people don't understand. Yes, you invest in real estate, but you're good at running business. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes this is one of the bullshit things that I really want to kind of point out. I think over the last five, 10 years, We've sold a story and I'm going to say we collectively as real estate investors, mm-hmm. because, you know, we are coaches, we are on social media, 
you know, we're trying to gain traction from investors. And so I'm just going to say we, mm-hmm. um, I'm we're not, all part of the same community. Yeah. We've told this story that real estate's easy. Mm. And by the way, I think investing, I said this on the King's Table podcast yesterday, excuse me, YouTube channel. Um, I do think that real estate investing is easy mm-hmm. at a small scale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was 25 years old and I'm in Reno, Nevada with my wife and kids. And we're at a Barnes and Noble and this little CD box, like basically jumps off the table and says, buy me. Mm-hmm. And it was Dolph DeRoos, um, it was a 13 CD series called the Real Estate Investors College. Mm-hmm. And we had a five hour drive from Reno to Elko. <laughs> and I remember popping those CDs in like one at a time and I just couldn't get enough of it. Mm-hmm. And by the time we got to Elko, Nevada, I'm like through CD number seven. I'm like halfway there, right? I wanted to drop the kids off and like just keep driving. But my point, the reason why I'm saying all of that is like, I listened to Dolph and I just started doing what he said. Mm-hmm. And uh, simultaneously, I'm, I'm at a, I'm, I'm working with a coach in the plumbing and HVAC business that I ran. And that coach said to me, if your business isn't helping you achieve your personal goals, you just own a job. So Karen and I start like mapping out, like, what do we really, what do we really want outside of this business? And we decided we buy two income producing properties a year for 10 years. So I, between Dolph DeRoos and that coach, I'm like, I'm going to go buy two pieces of property. And I did it. And it wasn't that difficult. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I think is interesting, the where I think we've done a disservice, I wasn't trying to get, I wasn't trying to build a real estate investing business. I wanted to buy 20 income producing properties over 10 years so that when I'm 65 years old and I'm working in this business, or if something happened to my business, I would have some residual income. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where we all started. I think most of us Mm -hmm. that are in our circles, we had a business, we had a job, whatever, and we started buying real estate. Mm -hmm. And then we get to a point where we're successful in real estate. And then we wake up one day and we have a real estate business. Mm -hmm. And then we start telling this story a little bit later, like you can get to a hundred doors, you can get to 500 doors. It's really easy. No, it's not. Buying one property is easy and everybody should do it. I'm fully convinced that everybody should own a property. This is when I say the bullshit story and most people would disagree with me right now. Most people have been saying for the last, and I've probably even said it, it's just as easy to buy a 72 space mobile home park as it is one house. And that's true. Because you know how to do it. Yeah. yeah. And you have the experience to get through it. Yeah. And I have, you know, a team, and mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not, mm-hmm. it isn't the same. Mm-hmm. And I've been really thinking the last probably year, but I've been saying it out loud more lately. Nobody's saying quit your job and start a business. Very few people are saying that because you know how hard it is to start a business. Right. The statistics show that like the majority of them fail in the first year, Mm -hmm. but everybody's saying, get into real estate. It's easy. And on one respect, I would agree with that. But I think the lie that we've told, and and I'll toss this back to you. I think the lie that we've told or the way that we've misperceived it, and I don't think we've even meant to, I don't think most people have meant to, but I think the thing where we've gotten it wrong is remembering where we came from and why we got into real estate Mm -hmm. investing and realizing that I was going to buy 20 properties over 10 years. And I thought, man, if I could get to 20 doors in 10 years, dude, that would be a home run. And it would be for the majority of people. Like that would be amazing. But now if you don't have 500 doors, you're a peon. I mean, that's the image, right? I'm not saying that, but. I agree. No, it's funny. Yeah. It's like, yeah, my 90 doors don't really uh, stack up to those 500 in the Midwest, even though the value is probably more. But yeah, 
you know, when I knew, found out, okay, so bigger pockets came around after I got into real estate. I haven't read a real estate book in at least 15 years. Mm-hmm. I realized Brandon Turner was real when I had a one-on-one conversation with him on one of the boats in Maui. And the conversation was, he, he's like, Brandon, I don't read real estate books. Everything I read is business books. And I think one distinction that we see is the people that buy real estate and are good at business, they buy a lot of real estate because they're not real estate investors, they're business owners. Right. And I think the people that just buy one or two or three, you know, they have a different job or they have a different business or they have a different focus. So they're creating money somewhere else to invest it in an asset. I think operators are different and you're an operator, I'm an operator. We're investors and we understand leverage. But we make money in our business to put more money in our business, whether that's in our business directly, whether that's in assets that are part of our business or even an internal income stream and part of that business. And so it's, you get that velocity because you think like a business owner, not like a real estate buyer or real estate investor. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And I think the, the, the conversation has kind of gotten to the point where you're either you either become a passive investor, mm-hmm. like keep your job, keep your business and invest with me. Yeah. Or you become an operator. Yep. And I think, I think we just need to get back to, you know what? It's okay if you just want to, I think everybody should own two or three or four or five rentals. Mm-hmm. Like, and you can do all of that. Yeah. You can have two houses. You can give my money to you passively. Like you, there's no such thing as passive income in real estate. Right. There's passive income from lending money to a real estate operator, but that's as close as you'll ever get to passive sure. income. And even if, you know, you own a lot of real estate and it creates passive income. Yeah, but you earn that income somewhere else to put it into that real estate. And now you have a property manager that manages it, but you still have an LLC above that property manager and you still have to file tax returns and talk to CPAs and get financial statements together. So there's nothing passive about real estate at all, in my opinion. Yeah. So you put up a post the other day and I forgot how you said it, but Seller financing. Mm. What, what what did you say? I put on a couple. Um, oh, it's the, this is, this, yeah, this is the controversial one. It's the most overhyped tool out there and least utilized for the value that it has. So it's the most valuable and the most overhyped. So how does that happen? Most people don't understand how to value financing. Mm-hmm. Like the best, like, so right now, every wholesalers are out there just trying to wholesale seller financing left and right. But they haven't, they're like, hey, here's a $2 million property. You can get sub to a million dollar loan at 2%. Okay, I got to put a million dollars down. Yeah. There's no value in that 50% leverage at 2%. And, and so that's part of it is A, you don't know what the tools are. B, you don't know how to use those tools to build a business. And so it gets overhyped, but it's so much more valuable when you actually understand how to use it, if yeah. that makes sense. Let's get in the weeds on, because it's been a long time since I talked to my audience about so I've yeah. done a lot of seller financing deals mm-hmm. over the years. And actually, most of my seller financing deals have probably been my largest home runs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get in the weeds on it. Yeah. Well, like, so the Burr method, for example, seller financing doesn't really help it, right? Because you're just going to go refinance and get rid of that financing. But when you understand the power of seller financing, typically when you get into a seller financing transaction, the seller doesn't ever want that money. Yeah. So if you then go refinance a property or you go sell a property, you create a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that. Like Gabe, Gabriel Hamill, like 
he just pays lenders back and then they're mad at him and then they lend him money after they pay with post-tax dollars. Yeah. We do it a little bit differently. And and I'm sure Gabe does this now. He tells those stories early on where he's like, I just gave money back. And they were like, I don't want the money back. Yep. So you structure it in a way, it's you never pay him back. But then you can still refi and you can still sell the property. So like a Burr, for example, we may know that we want to go in and, and take out bank financing later because it just now we have 30-year financing instead of five. Mm-hmm. But we'll still sell up, set up a five-year seller financing deal with them. And by the time we're done with that project and by the time that refinance is done, I've got another property to buy. And so when that refinance happens, that money and that promissory note just go to another escrow. Yeah. And so they never touch the money. They never have a capital gains tax event. We have more liquidity and more capital to build more por- portfolios with. And so it's... I think the biggest the reason why it's misunderstood and overhyped is people don't realize that the reseller financing is not a financial tool. It's mm-hmm. a relationship tool with financing backed into it that you can use to multiply and magnify everything you do at it. If you look at it that way, it becomes more powerful. But if you look at it as financing, it's like, okay, great. Rates are 8%. I got a 6% loan. Okay. On a $500,000 loan, it's 10 grand a year. Not a lot of value there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's beyond anything about that one deal. It's about this is my opportunity to help someone estate plan, yeah. solve a lot of the problems that they have from a, my kids don't want my real estate. I've depreciated it all. I, it, it's so depreciated and physically um, derelict. I have to put all this time into it. Here's a solution for you. I'll give you cash now defer your taxes, keep your income the same, and I'll do all those problems. And we'll profit really well from that. And they're like, oh, I can just sit back and collect the same check. In fact, you're going to give me 10, 20, 50, $100,000 now, Mm. whatever makes sense. And now I have money to spend and I still have my income tax stream. And a lot of sellers, they're in in, in this position where I can't sell. You hear that so often. I can't sell. And why do they say that? taxes yeah it's the only reason they think they can't sell because of taxes and that's the easiest problem to solve when it comes to seller financing yeah and you solve that one problem and then you solve a whole bunch of other problems and at the same time add value to your own life yeah that's kind of how i see it well it's interesting too because um so even on that note and i'll say this first and then we'll go into the psychology of the seller and the buyer for a second but what's interesting like the way that you even said that so when a seller says they can't sell there's a, there's a tax problem, mm-hmm. but the thing that we need to understand as a buyer or a potential buyer or somebody that's listening, it's not just the tax problem, but mm-hmm. now if this person has, say they have $700,000 in the bank mm-hmm. after they pay their $300,000 in taxes on mm-hmm. a million dollar building, and that million dollar building was providing them $100,000 a year. Well, the way that seller thinks about that is if I sell, I lose 300000 Yes, I've got 700000 and most of us would be like, oh, I... Us young guys would be like, ah, oh, man, I can make a boatload of money right. with that 700000 But what that seller is looking at, great, I have 700000 But now if every year that goes by, I eat $100,000 of that, at the end of seven years, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have any, I don't have a building left. I don't have any money left. But if that building exists, then they, so when you think about seller financing, they get to keep making, getting that payment mm-hmm. and interest along the way and not pay the taxes. And mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I just literally had a conversation an hour ago and that was kind of the comment. He was like, well, I can't, my income can't be less than it is now. And he was contrasting it to gross income versus what our mortgage payments were going to be. And the conversation is, well, if you sell your building, you're losing your income. 
you can go invest that income, but you're going to pay taxes and what you invest is going to be less. And so if you look at our monthly payment to you on the entire note pre-tax, it looks like a low interest rate. But if you pay tax and then factor that into a return on one, what's left over, it's a really good risk-free return. Mm -hmm. It's not risk-free. You know, they're trusting us and it's obviously tied to real estate. So there's conditions that are there, but, um, when it can be, when it's understood at the level of an estate planning tool from their perspective changes everything you communicate about when you're communicating with them. Mm -hmm. So over your years, your period of time of doing this, what is, what is the average like balloon payment financing time that you've seen on seller financing? Uh, I probably seven to 10 years. Yeah. Very few amortize all the way out. I think I've done two 30, 30 year fully amortized. Yeah. Most everything's interest only because they don't want the principal pay down. Yeah. And there's very little value to us in principal pay down. Like that's phantom income. I do not like phantom income. Um, so it's usually interest only payments. And then it's, I typically don't want anything less than a seven year time frame because I want an entire business cycle. And that's the conversation. This is why we want seven years. Business cycles run in seven years. Yeah. I want to have a runway so that way I can make a decision to sell when it's a good time to sell. I don't want to have to sell when it's a bad time to sell. Yeah. I did a, um, I did a seller financing deal on a two, $2.2 million portfolio. And it's just really interesting. I'll just give you the, the macro because mm -hmm. you said macro is important, right? It's super important. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. $2.2 million portfolio deal from a, from a seller. So two, $2.2 million portfolio and it's like 45 doors or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was, but what was interesting with this is it was a, it was a, a 15 year amortization, 10 year balloon payment, it might've mm -hmm. been a 20 year am, mm -hmm. 10 year balloon payment. And this is the value of those mentors and community and everything else. When I was structuring this deal, I went to Barry. Mm -hmm. um, so the guy wanted, he wanted 10% down. Mm -hmm. So 2.2 million, he wanted 220,000 down. I didn't have that 220. Mm -hmm. So I went to Barry and I said, Hey, I've got this other building. Loan me some money against this building for the down payment. Mm -hmm. So I borrowed money from Barry. He said, let me look at the deal. Mm -hmm. So I show Barry the actual deal and I borrow the money. And Barry said to me, he's like, looks like a good deal. The one thing I would say to you is, and this is in a deal where there's multiple houses, mm -hmm. right? Not just one. Mm -hmm. He said, every time you pay down the principal by a certain amount, because this wasn't an interest only thing. Every time you pay the principal down by a certain amount, if it's 200,000, ask him to release one of these houses that's yes, worth 200,000. Yes, yeah. I would have never thought of that mm -hmm. ever in my life mm -hmm. until, and I'm not a dumb guy. Mm -hmm. No. But you know, for the audience and for the listeners, it's like, this is why community and being around people and even just listening to podcasts and getting that one little mm -hmm. hint of wisdom. I mean, if, if this is the only thing they take away or the seller financing or whatever, it's valuable, but Barry told me, he said, put a schedule in there. Mm -hmm. And so I scheduled this thing all the way throughout for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Here's what's crazy. I just, and this is going to sound wild, but we just hit our 10 year mark. Mm -hmm. And I gave, I gave the remaining properties back to the seller. Mm -hmm. We did a deed in lieu of foreclosure, mm -hmm. which sounds like a bad thing. No, it saves him taxes. Yeah. It saves, yeah. It saves him in taxes. It's yeah. an easy transaction. Yeah. Um, so it, it sounds like you too, somehow. Oh yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. I love this. Yeah. And it's yeah. crazy because most people would think deed in lieu. In fact, when my attorney first said mm -hmm. this in a different deal, I was like, in lieu of foreclosure, right. like 
I, I asked her, I said, is that going to be a blemish? Like on yeah. my, yeah. And, and no, it's not. Because it's a private note. Yeah. yeah. And so to make a long story short, I was able to pay down and pull certain houses. Every time we paid down the note by a certain amount, I get to keep a house and refinance that house or sell that house. I ended up selling like seven properties in the first like 18 months out of the deal that got paid mm. down quickly. Yeah. And then you just kept kind of restructuring. So I just did at the end of 10 years, we did this deed in lieu of foreclosure, gave him back like seven properties. Mm-hmm. And I still have like five of the best properties mm-hmm. that were in that deal. Sold off the middle ones, yeah. sold off the ponds, gave back some more ponds. Yeah, and, and, kept the and he in. took the ones that yeah. I, I didn't want at the end of the yeah. day. And so I think the, the reason why I'm saying all of that is like, there's so many ways to get creative in real estate. And that's why I kind of wanted to, mm-hmm. we're way more in the weeds than I ever well, did on this Well, this podcast. is a really good example. I consider myself an expert. It took me so long to actually be comfortable saying that. I would have done it completely differently. Just the conversation with you. Now I would go that way. Like when you got in, my first comment was, yeah, separate notes and all those properties gives you flexibility but then you're paying them all down at the same time. But if you have one note that blankets them all and you're paying the entire note and now one gets released, mm-hmm. way better deal to structure that. Yeah. And then the deed in lieu on the back end, I've never thought of something like that. I've never even heard of something like that. That actually, I can go apply that right now to a seller I'm talking with. Yeah. Amazing. Well, it's interesting too, because you know you were talking on one sense that most sellers want to continue that payment. Mm -hmm. This guy didn't. Mm -hmm. And I I looked at, Mm -hmm. I actually looked at the whole deal and my wife and Karen and I had been talking about selling this portfolio off for, Mm -hmm. I remember in 2020 in GoBundance, talking to my pod, and one of the things that I really wanted to get done that year was figure out how to offload my Nevada portfolio. (laughs) 2021, how do I offload my Nevada portfolio? Because it was complicated because it's still in a structured space and the ones that were there, some of them needed. Anyway, to make a long story short on all of that, when it came time to start talking to this seller about extending, Mm -hmm. which I think most people that wouldn't want to do seller financing would be scared of that 10-year balloon payment. But to your point, I bet you 70% of those sellers would want to refinance. I don't, you, you know, the number better than I do, mm-hmm. but even the ones that didn't, when he said, no, I don't, I don't want to extend the note. I was like, I called my attorney and I said, Hey, he doesn't want to extend the note. What's the best way to handle this? And yep. then she's like, well, do you, do you want all of these houses? And I'm like, no. And she's like, which ones do you want and not want? And so we started structuring, like, how do I pay down and, mm-hmm. and get certain ones out? And again, at the end of the day, it was like, he took seven of them back that I didn't mm-hmm. want. And think of all the transactional costs that were saved in all that as well. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, you're just providing him more value and getting more value out of it. Yeah. Well, and some people might sit back and say too, like the one thing that I want to point out here is he wanted those houses back yeah. actually. Yeah. So yeah. he was a hands-on guy. Mm-hmm. And he probably lost part of his identity. He did. Yeah. He was a retired doctor mm-hmm. and he literally told me, he's like, you know, I know it's hard for you to manage from where you're at and this and that. These were the conversations that we're having up to November in the deed in lieu of foreclosure. Mm-hmm. He's like, I think, I think, you know, maybe we can even work on it together. I was like, dude, I don't, <laughs> don't want to get in the middle of working on anything together with you. Yeah. But I, I could, he wanted the houses yeah. back too. So it wasn't like the deed in lieu of foreclosure sounds like a bad thing, but it was, it was like a win-win scenario for all of us. Yeah. One of the biggest obstacles to overcome in seller financing is them losing their identity. Mm-hmm. It's the hardest thing for them to sign on the dotted line. And typically where we see the help in that transition, it's the family that's really saying, no, you need to let this go, John. I'm thinking of John specifically, but it's the family that's like, hey, 
this is your identity, but it's killing you yeah. and you have to let it go. But in this scenario, obviously, like that's his identity. He wanted it back. It yeah. makes complete sense. So the audience that's listening and they're thinking about seller financing, how do you deal with how do you deal with a seller that has sold to you mm-hmm. but shows up on the property? Yeah. <laughs> I've never had that problem. I have. Um, I have. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. I have. Uh, so I bought a property and the, the owner still owns the property next door and then they visit it from time to time. So the the worst I get are these emails every time they come into town like, hey, you got a weed over here. Yeah. Or, you know, the gate's not shutting all the way. I haven't had anyone visit a property, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I was, I was kind of alluding to all of that, not necessarily oh. just, but like mm-hmm. they're in your business mm-hmm. and you're never going to do it as good as them. Oh, no, no. But that's the beauty of it, right? It doesn't matter whether I think I can do it better than them or not. I'm going to learn something from them. And um, even in our marketing letter, the way that we market, because this is a mar- it's a letter thing because that's the demographic. That's what the conversation is, is, hey, even if you don't, let's, let me buy you a cup of coffee. I'd love to learn one thing you've learned in real estate. Or that's a common question I ask. You've got 30 years of investing in real estate. You know, I'm 20 years in, but what did you learn? Like, what's the number one piece of advice? And again, you're building, like, that's, it's, it's so valuable for you to glean that information. But at the end of the day, what am I doing? I'm building rapport and I'm Mm -hmm. making the negotiation happen. Not trying to, Mm -hmm. I'm, that's how beautiful seller financing is when you think of it in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys are actively like selling or sending letters to Mm -hmm. property owners. And when you say this demographic, are you targeting a certain demographic? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, tell me. Yeah, because, well, the first thing about seller financing is you got to know it doesn't make sense for him, mm-hmm. right? There's a whole, and Gabe would argue with me on this, but it's there's a demographic that it makes complete sense for. One of them is is not in a state, right? Like a kid calls you, hey, I just inherited 15 properties from my dad. Do you think they want seller financing? No, they have no, ta- they've got 100% basis. They have no tax ramifications. They're young. They're like us. They want to go spend money. But who doesn't? People that are, they're baby boomers, 70, 80 years old. They still have some lifetime left. They come from an era where they live a little bit more frugally. Money is not an issue. They're not, they're not selling because of money. They're selling because of other problems, mm. management, deferred maintenance, those types of things. And so that's who you market to. And those are the people that open mail. It right. Is. And, and I'd say right now, um, mailing didn't work for, a long time while the market was really, really hot. But the few deals that we get through mailing, they're typically seller finance and they're, they're good. Mm-hmm. So you keep doing it. Um, now it's starting to, that activity picks up now because market conditions have ch- shifted. Um, but yeah, that's, you know who you target, right? And so the other thing we do right now is, is we, we get a lot of pocket listings because we email brokers. Mm-hmm. None of those are seller financing because those, they're not typically working with a seller finance community. So I understand, you know, like lead gen is a, is a bicycle wheel, different spokes. So you have different lead gen for the different targets you're trying to go to. Well, I'm trying to flip houses. I'm trying to do land development and build new construction and build a portfolio. And so you have different marketing to go out but typically you're going to find those different types of marketings fill those buckets mm-hmm. you'll get cross stuff where you know this is more of a development marketing but you'll get some seller finance you know or yeah. portfolio building out of it and so again you don't want to be outcome dependent but you want to be aware of the, your target audience and are they responding to your marketing yeah yeah it's interesting I, and i'd love to have your your thoughts on this maybe it's an anomaly but all the seller financing that i've done mm-hmm. Um, the interest rate has been better 
Always. Than, than what I could get from a bank. Mm-hmm. Is that true across yeah. the board? And that's usually the conversation I'm having is, is it's, it's a chance. It's a, it's a, um, trade-off cash you out. But in order, you know, in, in this is the conversation I have. I have two different business models. I have a buy and hold business model that creates profit in the future. I have a development bond model that is mostly cash that creates profit now. This one, I need a good deal. I need to get my money back. I need to put pay my employees. I need to put food on the table. This one, I don't. Mm. This is the monopoly board. This is the chess board. This is what I'm building for the future. I don't live off of this. Mm-hmm. I live off of this. So if we need to work in a scenario that I'm going to live off of that property, it kind of has to look like this. Yeah. And it's always going to be lower. But in order to pay you more, you got to give me a better interest rate. Yeah. In the, the, the seller comp finance conversation today based on the price they want and kind of the payments we can pay on the net on it's a three point we gave him two offers one the price he wanted so it's a 3.2 percent interest rate interest only is the only way to make that work and then the shorter time frame with the lower price is 3.83 percent and so then the conversation is well interest rates are seven or eight percent why is this so low and then it's well here's the world if you want me to cash you out i need to go to a bank for your two and a half million dollar property where you're willing to take 350 grand down, if I go to the bank, I have to put 1.5 million dollars down. Mm-hmm. Completely changes everything in, the, in, in how you look at this. Yep. And so that's not going to work for me. Yep. So if I have to cash you out and I can only go get a million dollar loan, now we're not talking 2.5. We're not talking the 2.1, which is last year's cap rate, yep. even though you want 2.5, which isn't even real. Right. If you want cash, we're 1.4. Yeah. And so it's just a logical scenario that the seller financing is better interest. Otherwise, you're going to cash them out. And and that's the other conversation is um, the bank's better interest. I don't have, I'm not incentivized to keep your promissory note. I'm incentivized to cash you out. Mm-hmm. And And again, it's a partnership. In order for them to be successful, we have to be successful. So if the lack of success is defined by them getting their money back. Well, <laughs> you know, you got to be more appealing than a bank yeah. or you have to be willing to work in some other scenarios, moving notes and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a logical conversation to have because you know how the pieces work. Yeah. I think as a, as a buyer, you know, somebody that's in the audience, like listening to this and thinking about it. So as a buyer, and again, I don't know if this was just natural to you and I, or if it's just something that we learn along the way, but I've had to realize, and I think this is maybe just negotiation 101, like what does that person on the other side actually want? And I think the problem that we get into, and I've talked to so many people, why would they finance? Why would they sell or finance? Like, why would they do that? And the thing that we have to understand, we can't be thinking about it from our perspective. Because from our perspective, why, why would I, I want that cash? Mm-hmm. Why would I do that? But from their perspective, it's just, and we've already kind of touched on this, but when I I got a commercial building that was like 12,000 square feet and the guy wanted to sell me his business Mm -hmm. and he packaged the business and, and the real estate deal together. And so I ended up paying $700,000 for a building. Um, so he wanted eight, I got him down to seven and he handed me an appraisal. So this was 2012. Mm -hmm. He handed me an appraisal from 2004 Mm -hmm. for 600 and. Forty-five thousand, mm-hmm. and now I'm buying the building for seven. And the business, yeah. Well, the business was four hundred. Okay, it was on top of that. 
But I'm buying the building for seven mm-hmm. off of an appraisal that he had from 2004, and this is 2012. Mm-hmm. And he's like, the appraisal was 645,000 in 2000. He's like, I, I know it's an old appraisal, but it, it's, I think it's worth seven. And I was like, I think it's worth seven too. Like mm-hmm. these are the, like, this is just what you're dealing with. Like he, this is, this is something that one of my early metrics said, like he, he was a don't want him. Mm-hmm. Like he just didn't want it. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to deal with it anymore. The guy had gotten into a divorce. So, you know, they always say, and I don't know if you've seen or heard this or believe it, but death, divorce, don't want them and just, uh, destruction or despair. I haven't. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So Barry Liparelli actually told me this. If you find somebody that's in a divorce mm-hmm. or they're in despair or destruction, you know, whether it's from a tornado or they, they just don't have money to fix it up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, don't want them and, and, or a death, the trust scenario. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you find somebody that's in one of those four categories, like they're a great target yeah. for you to get a good deal. Right. And by the way, you're helping them too, cause they want out. Right. Mm-hmm. So this guy had just gotten a divorce. Mm-hmm. Plus he was in despair. Mm-hmm. He got diagnosed with MS. Mm-hmm. So he knew he wasn't going to be able to run his business anymore. Mm-hmm. And he also knew that his business wasn't worth anything if he didn't bundle it together with the building. And so it was a great opportunity for me to, but to make a long story short, he seller financed the building and the business. And he wanted, so the package deal was 1.1 million. He wanted 10% down, which would have been 110,000. I came back to him as we were negotiating and I said, Don, I have to put a bunch of inventory into your business, which you've let run down. So I, I don't have the 110,000. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I'll carry the down payment first. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, so we'll put a $110,000 note first. Mm-hmm. And once you pay that off, then you can, then you, so he didn't even do it like simultaneously. No, he did it consecutively. Yeah. So he's like, we'll just push back the, when the note begins yeah. until you pay down the down payment. <laughs> so and you I, just deferred. Yeah. But you closed. You closed simultaneously, just deferred the income two separate timelines on the payoff. Yeah. So I made the down payment yeah. first and then I started paying it on the building. Yeah. His, his, his idea, not mine. Yeah. And I'm well, just like, you don't know what you're going to get into. Yeah. And, and here's a really important thing for people to understand. Seller financing is not for the buyer. And, and that's why it's misunderstood and overhyped is because it's like, I can't get a mortgage. I need seller financing. No, that's not how it goes. The seller financing wants they want it. Yeah. I remember the second seller financing deal sitting in the guy's office and he's like, yeah, man, you know, you're going to want a low down payment, you know, probably no more than 10 grand. It's like, yeah, that, that would work for us. Yeah. Your interest rate's got to be right. You know, probably no more than like 4% seems high. Maybe we start at three and then get up to 4%. And I'm sitting there across from him at his office in his desk. And I'm like, you're literally giving me all the terms and I'm salivating. Yeah. And they're his idea. Yeah. Maybe we start at three, you go to four. That's crazy. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. and at that point, I never thought about escalating interest to escalate yeah. payments because your NOI increases and you just have limited NOI. I do that in almost all of our deals now because the reality is, is you're buying them at such slow rent. You have to start with the low interest rate. So yeah. all the time, every offer is starts at this interest rate and then it goes up 1% every three years or it goes up, you know, a third of a percent every year. Um, and that was taught to me by a seller. A lot of the things that we do were taught to me by a seller. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting on that building too, because we still own that building today and the note, it was on a 10 year note, Mm -hmm. 15 year am 10 year note. Mm -hmm. Um, it came due in 2022. Mm -hmm. He calls me up like six months ahead and he's like, Mike, your note's coming up. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Don, I'm working on refinancing it. And he's like, no, I, I, I'd like to talk about keeping the note. 
And he, so we got the note at five and a quarter. And then when we refinanced the note, he's like, I got to bump it up to 5.75. Yeah. I'm like, fine. Like, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, interest rates then were like six and three quarters for, yep. for commercials. So, um, pretty, pretty good deal all the way around. Um, anything else you want to talk about on seller finance? I just say this out of all, we've probably done 50 seller finance transactions. Um, the majority of those are longer term, seven plus years or more paid off two sellers in that period of time. And, and a lot of notes have come due. They just didn't want to get paid off. Yeah. Yeah. And so then it's just a new negotiation. Sometimes they do want 10 or 15 grand yeah. and it's a principal reduction payment. And then you work that into your business model. Yeah. It's a lot easier to come up with 15 grand than, you know, 400 yeah. grand. Yeah. And even going to the bank and the headache. And this is another mm -hmm. thing that, um, so many people are adverse to it because again, I think where I was going with the psychological standpoint, I think so many of us, we have to be careful sitting in the seat that we're sitting in mm -hmm. and trying to think from our perspective what that seller is thinking. Right. When it comes time, even if they want a $15,000 pay down, you have to think about how much headache is a bank going to put me through to go get financing on this thing? They're going to want some origination points. You know, what do you have to go through? Mm -hmm. Is it worth 15000 Probably. I mean, depending on the size of the loan. So mm -hmm. when you've got somebody you've already been dealing with, they're flexible. Plus, when something like COVID happens, which I don't know how many times that's going to happen in our lifetime, but I don't know what you found, but my seller financers were so much easier to deal with mm -hmm. than my banks were. Mm -hmm. Banks were still pretty easy. Yeah. But my seller financing guys were so easy to work with. Yeah, I had one lend one lender where the we structured it as a pretty large large principal reduction payment, like just built into the timeline. And because of COVID and construction late delays, and then permitting shutdown and permitting delays, it was like, hey, you know, I'm supposed to give you this fifty thousand dollar payment in August. Here's how things are kind of lining up. It's probably like December, maybe January. They're fine with it. Yeah. You know, they just want to know why. Yeah. Um, and then in this scenario, I, like I, I showed them where we're at in the, the permit process and the approval process and whatnot. Um, and it just, that's the risk you take on in real estate, right? Market conditions shift. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've had two huge market condition swings that we've never seen in the history of real estate. Um, I'd even say 2020, 2022 is significantly more drastic than 2008. Um, and so those things happen and banks, they don't, I would, and I love this comment is people not wanting to be in debt to a private individual. I'll take a private individual over a bank any day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, so me and the Kings on the Kings table, YouTube channel. Yeah. We've been checking out. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about, um, you know, just real estate and what's going on. Most of us are real estate guys. I've been thinking about everything that's happened the last year and I'm, so I have no data to back this, but I'm just going to throw it out. <laughs> I'll break it out for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can throw them together. I'm, I have this theory that real estate doesn't matter as much as it used to. Okay. Unpack that. So 2008 implosion, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're, we're always looking backwards at interest rates and what did the real estate market do and all of these things. And then you look at what the Fed did to kind of slow everything down mm -hmm. and it has slowed everything down. We were talking about this when you came in my house, mm -hmm. my house has been for sale for like six months. I haven't gotten one offer. <laughs> like, but the thing that I told my real estate agent at the yeah. very beginning is I'm not fire selling this thing. Like, yeah. I'm not even dropping my price. Yeah. This is my lowest price. Um, so he knew out the gate. So, um, and there's been a couple other houses in the neighborhood that have sold, but they've dropped their price by like 10 or 15%. I'm not yeah. doing that. Right. Um, 
but I haven't gotten any offers, mm-hmm. right? Real estate's like deadlocked right now in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. So the Fed comes out and they're like, we got to cool this thing down. We got to slow everything down. And when you look at, when you look at everything that's happened the last year, real estate has slowed down drastically. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of, you know, investors, we've got a fund that's a short-term debt fund, 12 months. Mm-hmm. That's paying 12%. Our investors are loving it. And the reason why they're loving it is they're like, well, I don't know what's going to happen in the next six or 12 months, right. but I'm pretty sure in 18, 24 months, there's going to be blood in the streets. Yep. Like there's going to be so much opportunity. Yep. And they've been saying this for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I don't see the blood in the streets yet. And, and I think there's various reasons that could potentially be the reasoning behind that. But what this has kind of led me to, there's so many other things in the economy now that are making so much more income money. I mean, even when you look at the unemployment, mm-hmm. which we haven't really taken a huge unemployment hit through all of this. Um, even when we hear like Amazon laid off 12,000 people four weeks later, Amazon hired 8,000 people. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? Um, I have this theory that real estate doesn't matter as much as it used to in, in the economy engine as a whole, because I think there's so much more going on in the tech sector mm. and in technology and even you know business in general. And the consumer, I'm not saying that they're doing well, mm-hmm. but when you have the busiest travel day, I mean, we're just past Thanksgiving. Last Sunday was the busiest travel day that's ever been on record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Friday, Black Friday was a record. Yeah. I, I, I think what you're saying sounds crazy to most people. I can see, like, there are probably no stats to point to that. What I would say is this. The residential real estate market, real estate in general, but specifically the residential real estate market, has been in a recession since July 2022. And it literally was the best market we've ever seen in May 2022. And Portland specifically, I don't want to say this is nationwide, but the best real estate market we've ever seen May 2022 to one of the worst we've seen July 2022. Like we had an entire entire real estate cycle that typically goes seven years happen in two months. Mm-hmm. But the entire economy hasn't come into a recession, even though the housing industry makes up 20% of our GDP. Yeah. I think that's kind of what leads into it. So really, all real estate is, is a vehicle for money to throw, flow through. And, and what you said, what, which you made a great point, is there's so many vehicles now to invest money and look at the, cap, the market cap on Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Okay, well, it wasn't there however long ago it was. I don't know yeah. much about it, but there's an, there's a different vehicle for money to flow through now. So I can definitely see it in that aspect. I think the concern is is so many jobs that are in it that if it goes so long, it becomes more of a factor to the general economy. But I would agree that there's probably less of an impact that it u- used to have. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that's interesting too, that from a negative impact standpoint... I would also argue that if you look at the jobs where people can get wealthy in a short period of time, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, real estate investors, but mortgage brokers, real estate agents, um, you know, you can, um, I've seen mortgage brokers that were not mortgage brokers. And three years later, they're freaking balling, man. They're mm-hmm. like making a million dollars a year. Right. And I know that's not normal. That's an extreme case, but even somebody that goes from making, you know, 50,000 a year and then they get under the right mortgage broker and pretty soon they're making 350,000 mm-hmm. a year. And so I think some of the challenges that could exist in the real estate market that trickles down to elsewhere is those high earning, mm-hmm. you know, individuals that are in those markets. Mm-hmm. And 
I think this time around, maybe some of that happened so fast mm. that hopefully this is another conversation we've been having is like, it's lifestyle creep. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is, you know, I'm wondering if maybe people have not, I, you know, did you ever read Outliers? Yes. Mac Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. yeah. It's such an interesting book because it talked about like, you know, if you look at Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and the period of time that they were born and the computer was new and mm -hmm. Bill Gates had access to one of the first, you know, yeah, he went to Stanford every day or something yeah, like that as and, an eight year old. Yeah. And like most yeah. people would like, didn't have access to a computer until 12 years later right. when they made access to, you know, everybody. Yeah. And I'm wondering if we're in an outlier time. Mm. And I think this is just more of a discussion than it is looking for a specific answer, right. but I'm wondering if we're in an outlier period of time where we had, you know, 2008 happen. And then you even kind of talked about this at the beginning of the show, like going bankrupt in 2011, really like 2008 took till 2012, 2013, 2014 yeah. for a lot of us to be like, Oh, real estate's back. Right. So from 2014, I'll just say 2014, doesn't matter exactly. But from 2014 to 2022 was like a freaking heyday, right? I actually stopped buying mobile home parks in 2019. I told my team, we closed on a bunch of parks in October of 2019. And I said, we're not buying anymore. We're at the top of the market. Mm -hmm. We're done. I missed it by two years, mm -hmm. but that 2014 to 2022 was a heyday in real estate. Mm -hmm. What I'm wondering, and, and here's the thing that you plug into the last three years. So we had a heyday in real estate, a whole bunch of new real estate investors came in, probably the greatest generation of real estate the greatest volume yeah. generation of real estate investors ever mm -hmm. came in that period of time. Yep. I don't think anybody would argue about that. Um, and it's part of that social media and the coaching and bigger pockets blowing up and everything else. Yep. But when you really look at this and I'll put a bow on this, when you look at all of that period of time, real estate being so hot, mm -hmm. if you look at, if you look at the successful real estate investors before those, that generation, it was a lot of guys like what I was talking about earlier they're successful in business and they pour some of their capital into real estate. Mm -hmm. So the majority of real estate investors had a core business, maybe 70, 80% of their net worth was in their business mm -hmm. and then 20, 30% in their real estate. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have all these people that have came into real estate the last you know, 10 years that are doing it as a living. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some impact on that too, that has yet to kind of flush out. But here's, here's where the outliers conversation comes in. 2020 hits. We've all, we're three years, not even three full years. We're two years past like a traumatic event that we still don't. I think in 10 years, when we're looking backwards, we're going to say in this period of time right now, I would, I would bet, I'd bet $10,000 that 10 years from now, we're going to look back at this and we're going to say the real estate boom, um, COVID government money. Yeah. And, and simultaneously you have so many other things in the economy that are blowing up. Yeah. You know, when you look at these periods of time where real estate over that period of time that you were even talking about, the S&P 500 was crushing. Mm -hmm. Stock market. I think we're in this also simultaneously period of time where the opposite, the old real estate investors, I think were the good real estate investors. I think a bunch of the new real estate investors don't know what they're doing. Yeah. But when you look at the VC market and you look at the private equity market, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. There's so much more money in venture capital mm -hmm. and private equity, even though it's slowed down right now. Mm -hmm. There's so much more money in that than there was in 2008, 2012, previous downturns. Yeah. And so I think there's been a flip. I think there's been a flip. And I think that um, the last thing I'll say on the anomaly, the outlier, 
I think consumers, I think consumer spending, I think consumer habits have changed too. And everybody's been waiting for American savings to run out. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's been the issue. Dude, you, okay. I'm smiling for a reason because you're so I, I, I walked through Austin, downtown Austin last night for like an hour. Like I was thinking about all of these things in so many yeah. different ways. So one thing like real estate doesn't matter anymore. Think about the risk level. Your last podcast episode, you really went deep into risk. We've had the risk-free rate at 1% for 20 years practically. Mm-hmm. Real estate has to be very, very important at that point because you're in a low-yield environment. Real estate, is that's the magnet for money because you're, you're just looking on that spread between risk-free versus now real estate, the next level of risk, right? Mm-hmm. And so real estate, real estate can only provide so much yield without taking on significant risk. Yep. And so when that risk-free rate goes from 1% to 5%, Real estate now isn't the vehicle that makes sense. Venture capital does, right? Now owning and buying businesses, that does. And so, so much in the yield curve, such a deep topic that people don't really even understand. But when the yield curve gets out of whack, asset values change, the flow of money changes to different arenas. And then you throw on top recessions and this, you know, and, and that's where macroeconomics is so important. You have to understand Trade-offs. If you can't value trade-offs, you will never understand the yield curve. You'll never understand why macro money does what macro money does. And then if you don't understand that, you're never going to be able to understand the interest rate environment. And if you can't understand the cost of capital, how can you deploy capital in a responsible and intelligent way? Yeah. So that's one thought on that is just the risk change has now changed the value of real estate as a magnet. The other thing is lifestyle creep. Um, Mauricio said a stat once on the drunk real estate, something like 70% of syndicators are less than three years of experience. Wow. And then you think of, well, where does a lot of syndication come from now? Influencers. Mm. Right. And so now you have inexperienced people that grew up in an era completely different of us. We grew up in the hustle porn area. Now it's the lifestyle era. So now you have lifestyle creep. And what I was specifically thinking about last night and walking around is, Robots are an essential component to us or machines to us being able to survive because mm. you've got a demographic now that doesn't want to do the service level jobs that we used to have, which sounds scary, but they're not here to replace us. They're here to elevate us because there's so many different ways to create income. I mean, how many 18 year olds are making a million dollars on YouTube now, right? Yeah. So when you have so many other areas to re- to to get that income that creates the lifestyle you want, you have to have something supplement that level of service on top of it. And that's kind of, it's kind of, it kind of sounds dystopian and it kind of sounds scary, but it does make sense when you look at macroeconomics. Yeah. Yeah. You just pointed out the YouTube thing and it just, you know, brings my mind back to, you know, eight years ago, how, how many, how many millions of dollars were being made on YouTube? Not None. like, and so that's such a great, it's such a great parallel because I think the idea of, you know, Henry Ford was going to put everybody out of jobs, right? And right. Then, like the, all the horse farriers and mm-hmm. there, there was that concept then that everybody talks about. Have you read The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth? No. Is that an economics book? Uh, he, it's yes, but slanted toward, uh, so his whole premise is, um, technology is actually deflationary. It drops yes. it well, for sure. pricing down, yes. right? So, yeah. so many people are scared of it, yeah. but the reality is it's-, it's We can't gonna, survive without it. Yeah, and it's going to bring pricing of product down. So even if 
it lowered wages across the board. Um, or, you know, say a, fam- a family household of two goes from making 120000 to 100000 mm-hmm. because one's only working part-time it, because of technology specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that happened, uh, his whole premise is, well, it wouldn't matter because things are cheaper, right. which is interesting. Yeah. No, it's technology is extremely deflationary. Yeah. Like construction loans, technology, like productivity is the essential component to, to keeping inflation away, right? Like if we're spending and don't have productivity, AKA COVID, yeah. it's where inflation is born out of. But if you're spending and for every dollar you spend, there's a dollar of productivity, inflation doesn't exist. Yeah. And technology is, if we don't have it, our economy blows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. You had mentioned, and I don't know if it was on podcast or before, but you had mentioned, I'll put you on the spot here. Yeah. You had mentioned that you're going to start doing some coaching. What, yeah. What, what are you doing? Uh, well, I've coached real estate investors for a long time, um, going on 10 years now. And our brokerage is literally set up as group coaching where I, I think what gets me all fired up is, um, just, I've seen so many people buy their first house and become millionaires and yada, yada, yada. And I just love pouring into people, but I think of impact. We used to say, you know, one of our, our core values, impact isn't one of them, but that's really how we evaluate things or what are the level of impact we're doing for our community. And I look back and it's like, well, I have a pretty limited level of impact if I'm coaching someone to get started in real estate. But if I can take someone who's an operator that's building a portfolio, that's negotiating real estate, and if I can coach them to become a, better at their trade, that impact is significantly different mm. because now their business is bigger. They're, it's, they're, it's, it may not affect my community because it's yeah. not someone here locally, sure. but someone in another market, it affects them. And so where my model or my mind has gone from a coaching standpoint is what do I really enjoy? I enjoy finance. I enjoy negotiation, macroeconomics. That brings no value to someone that's getting started, mm. right? They need to understand marketing and drive for a dollar and, you know, just yeah, getting yeah. your list, all the yeah. stuff that I want to shoot myself over. And so where I've come through, and this was an, again, a mastermind. So a, a little mini GoBundance mastermind. And what came out of it was, what are you passionate about? I love seeing people kill it in real estate and helping them. And, and I love that aha moment that they get where they're saying, I'm going to do this when you're like, Ooh, what if you did this? Yeah. And then they just go and you see their eyes light up and then they see, I'm at a stage in my investing career that I see the third, fourth, and fifth order of things. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people are in the first, second, and third order of things that they can't see further down yeah. the road. And so if you can take someone that's on the second and third order and get them to see the fifth and sixth, that's so impactful for them, everything around them. And then that's amazing for me. Um, so yeah, coaching and, um, but specifically operators that, that are, actively building portfolios and negotiating. Yeah. It's what I like most. And I think that's where I bring the most value to the world at this point. So you have a, let's say an 18 to 28 year old mm-hmm. and you don't know anything about them. Yeah. What is your, what is your advice to them around real estate? <laughs> I don't know anything about nope. them. You don't know if they want to own a house. You don't know if they want to invest in real estate. You don't know. You don't know anything. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. My first question ever, and people always come to you with the deal or this, is this a good deal? Is that it's like, I don't know. What are your goals? What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Right. So what's your vision? And that's where everything has to start. Like, I don't want to be outcome dependent because your outcome is going to change. Your path is going to change, but you have to start somewhere from the future. Yeah. So that way you can work backwards to there. Right. 
creating a plan isn't about hey i want to get here it's about what are, who what do i need who do i need to become to get there mm-hmm. and then what are the things that you need to do now to become that person yeah. and so you have to work from a vision and then as you start becoming that person your vision's going to change yeah. and so then you make adjustments right and so that's one thing i love that you know the one three and five year vision is because the one year vision won't change a whole lot the five year is going to change a ton yeah um so it always starts from working backwards or what do you want to be yeah you know and so if someone comes to me that's probably my first question and they say well i want to own two pieces of real estate okay well then go hire a broker Mm -hmm. you know well i want to be this i want to retire off passive income and I want to have this portfolio and I want to do low income housing. Well, that's a completely different conversation because they're really clear on what they want to do. And that takes a much heavier lift than that. I just want to buy two houses. Do you think that home ownership is dead for that generation? I think, um, it's scary as a young person growing up right now. And I think we hear that everywhere because the reality is affordability is defined by economics, Mm. not by our society. And the reality is, is there's not enough housing. Every market's affordable. You know how you know it's affordable? Properties transact. Means someone can afford it. So the economics of every market you go into say this market is affordable for this percentage of people. So for the other percentage of people, it becomes really, really, really scary. And so they don't know that they can create ownership. I don't know that it's dead because I still think it's one of the easiest and best vehicles an average Joe can do to change their future. Um, But I do think the methods that younger people use to buy their first piece of real estate will be different. Yeah. Um, More grants, more, I I do, I just can't see the government not getting involved at a higher level. Yeah. Um, You know, Biden's first time tax credit which was significantly different than the last one that has, we haven't heard about that in a long time. But the only reason we haven't heard about that is because priorities have shifted. Um, And part of that is, well, real estate isn't as expensive now as it used to be. It is on a month to month basis, but not on a global long-term basis. Um, So I think it'll shift, but I still think it's going to be extremely an important component for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 40 year mortgages. Do you think that's going to become more of the norm? Um, I could see it happening. Um, and there's a lot of like our 30 year mortgage is actually pretty unique in the world, in the globe. Yeah. Um, I really, I think it gets scary if we start going to like 90 and hundred year mortgages, 40. Ah. Cause all you're doing is you're playing, you're just pushing up real estate value at that point. You know, the real solution isn't extending the mortgage out further so your payments less. That's just going to push values up. The real solution is creating inventory. Yeah. And like, the Fed is the the punching bag of everyone right now. I haven't complained one thing about the Fed. I think they've done this perfectly. They've literally threaded a needle. They told you in November 2021, this is what we're going to do. Four months from now, this is going to start. This is what we're targeting. And they haven't changed that at all. Their projections have shifted tiny bit. But like the, at the end of last year, their unemployment rate was projected at 4.5%. Yeah. We're still under four. So why would they pivot? right? They're communicating perfectly. The one thing that they're missing, if we don't get builder confidence up, the future is fucked. And and they need to get builder confidence up because we need inventory, we need supply. And that's the bigger, bigger, best way to solve that problem. Artificially changing your mortgage payment is problematic or can become problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you alluded to this, but you know, we're the only nation, one of the only nations in the world that has the, mm-hmm. the financing system that we have. And I think as we get closer to 40, 
year mortgages and then eventually you have to go to 50. Like, I think it becomes more, uh, you become, the average American becomes more aware mm. of what mortgage really means. Yeah. Till death do we engage. Um, mort gauge. Um, Never heard that. it, that's the, the root word yeah. is engaged till death. Yeah. Um, and so I actually, in most countries, they're talking 90 year mortgages at this point. Yeah. yeah. It's really crazy because, um, I don't, I don't know that home ownership matters other than it's kind of like college. It's mm. another one of, it, to me, home ownership is exactly like college. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like this is what you do. And we're going to make sure that we fund it. Yeah. Well, I think here's a good, and I agree with that. I rent my house. I don't own it. I rent it. It's fine. Cause wait, I, wait, wait, you're a real estate investor. I know. Just kidding. <laughs> well, it, it's, it be like, I think everyone needs to invest, but you don't need to own your own home. I agree. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I was joking about that. I know. <laughs> yeah. So I think that goes with that component. As long as you're investing, you don't need to own yeah. real estate, yeah. but you do have to invest. You have to have that leverage in your life. If you don't have that leverage in life, you have so much, you have so little control over your own self. And, and me, you know why I'm really happy in life? no one has control over me. Yeah. Like I literally can't think of, I really don't have anyone telling me what to do at any given point in time. Yeah. That's me is freedom. Mm-hmm. No, like a, a cheap little hoodie. Like I don't yeah. have a beat up Subaru. Like I don't need nice things, but I want freedom. Yeah. Um, so and investing gives you that. So you have to invest. You have yeah. to have that leverage in your life. Yeah. yeah. So I got a couple minutes. So let's, yeah. uh, let's land this plane. Yeah. What? Just what? like the Fed's going to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going to be a soft one. Yeah, hopefully. Um, well, actually, I don't know. Maybe we want a good one. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. As a real estate investor, a hard landing is not a bad thing at all. Right. Um, it would just suck for the economy. I yeah. don't want that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And we survive through all of it either way. That's yeah. the crazy thing. Is like, yeah. I'd rather see people have less stress. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 So what? What have we not touched on that you've been thinking about that you think matters? Ah, you know, with you specifically, and this is, um, like I wrote a post on this the other day because I was excited to come here is imposter syndrome, Mm. you know, like, um, and that's the power of social media. I was the biggest imposter for a long period of time and pushed that off. And now I finally got on social media and doing something and seeing the power of it that I was afraid of and all that. And one thing you said to me, the first small group we were ever a part of where we were first bonded, I was comparing myself to all the other people in the room. You're like, you know, there are one percenters. You can't compare yourself to that one percenter. There's the, there's people in that other 99% that need you to continue to be you mm. and live authentically into who you are. And that spoke volumes to me at that time. And that was August of 2019. Um, you know, I think COVID was an amazing experience to really lean into leadership Mm. And I think as human beings, we have this ego inside of us that just is fearful of everything. Mm. It either builds us up to think we're more than what we actually are, or it does the exact opposite and tears us down to think we're less than we actually are. And if we can have the power and the confidence to lean into who we authentically are, mm. that's when we actually see who we are. And I like, I missed the complete, I totally missed the boat with social media. I was never active on social media. I left it from 2021 to 2023. And now I'm just engaging significantly in it. I am such a more 
a well-rounded human being just from the activity I've done on social media in the past 30 days than I was 30 days ago. Mm. I have a much under bigger understanding about some of the people I know on a very surface level. And all I do is ask questions on social media. And then you see people answer these things or I put out data out there and I like I had a, a childhood friend from who's on a baseball team when we were 12 and he's like, Hey, I'm buying this house. And I started to get just coaching him on how to save money on his house. And he then comes back. Yeah. I saved 20 grand. Thanks for the advice. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. And to think that I, he would have paid 20 grand more for that property because I was afraid of yeah. something. Yeah. Like that's a, it's kind of a scary thing, but it's a, you don't know what you don't know until you kind of get into it. Yeah. And I'd say imposter syndrome has kept me from becoming so much more of what I could be. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to just be who you are. Yeah. And if that offends someone, it's probably okay. It's a good point. And most of the people that we're actually worried about, we don't give a shit about anyway. <laughs> so true and actually they don't yeah. give a shit about us really. right like yeah so it, it, correct right like all of our flaws everyone we love they're gonna accept every single one of our flaws yeah. you know the only people that aren't the ones that we really probably don't care about yeah yeah so good and if we do care about them maybe we shouldn't yeah, yeah. social media can be a powerful tool if we keep our self in check yeah, I always looked at it as this is the bragging post or it's this or it's that or they're just using it for business. And I used to have such a negative connotation to it. And it is, it's bad. You, it's the, it's the, you get in your echo chambers and all that, but there's significant beauty and power in it as well. Yeah, it's yeah. the Antichrist. <laughs> well, this has been fun, man. Yeah, um, I really appreciate you. you coming over and yeah, it's been good. Yeah, it's a really good conversation. I appreciate it. So you. where do people find you? Oh, uh, so um I, right now, I'm only on Facebook, Mike Nuss, Facebook. I do have an Instagram, rarebird underscore Mike. Um, and I, I'll start making more videos and using that platform, but that's probably just the easiest way. Send me a message and cool. yeah, we can go from there. Very cool. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on, man. Dude, thank you. Yeah. This was an absolute great time. Crushed it. Yeah, thank you. If you've found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.